This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There was a massive vigil last night in Denver for victims of the weekend's attack on a Pittsburgh synagogue. Similar ceremonies took place in Boulder and Colorado Springs. The head of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado is Reverend Amanda Henderson. She was at the Denver event held at Temple Emanuel. She's going to help us wrestle with some tough questions today. Welcome to the program, Reverend. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before I ask you about Sunday night's vigil, which drew thousands, I'm really interested to know if shootings like the one in Pittsburgh lead you at all to throw up your hands with this interfaith work and think, what's the point? Hmm. No, it, it, uh, while I do definitely feel heartbreak and sadness, and when I uh, saw the news alert, it just knocked the wind out of me, as these events do, um, the first thing I do is reach out to the people that I know and that I love and that are going to be impacted um, by this news, which we all are. But I, I think that when events like this happen, my instinct is to draw closer to people and to dig deeper into this alternative way of being that is grounded in love and compassion and to uh, live into that rather than the fear, while also naming that, yes, this is exhausting and heartbreaking at the same time. Is there a certain amount of interfaith work that naturally preaches to the choir, for lack of a better expression? That is, do you ever have the hope of reaching someone who would walk into a synagogue and kill people? Or fundamentally, are those interested in interfaith work the ones who would never do that? I think that's a good question. It's a question that we get a lot. We frequently get, uh, you know, where are the people who are on the other side, in quotes, uh, at our types of events and gatherings? And I think it's important to know that real change happens through relationships and through oftentimes one-on-one relationships and through these small connections that we build every day. And while we might not be able to uh, change the mind of someone who is an extremist or at the far end of the spectrum, through slowly working and building these relationships, we can counter uh, the level of hate and vitriol that seems to be stirring up in our communities right now. And a lot of the those conversations are happening. They aren't as visible as what we see uh, in the media, but a lot of people are doing the hard work of building relationships behind the scenes across our big differences. I want to get back to that and specifically the work you're doing in Colorado to manifest that. But just briefly to Sunday's vigil at Temple Emanuel, my understanding is that it was quite a huge outpouring uh, of folks there. What stood out? What stood out was the number of people and the level of longing for real connection and to be together in this time. And I think also the the gratitude in the wide spectrum of people who were present, who are showing up to stand together in solidarity and to call for a different way and to call for healing and to call for an end to the divisiveness that is tearing us apart, and to name that we need leaders who are doing the same thing, who are bringing us together. You see the divisiveness that is tearing us apart. Do you think bigotry is more pronounced these days? And if so, why? 
I think that, one, it's always been there. It's important to name that it's not a new phenomenon. Uh, I, I think it's important to know that this is a part of a, our disease of humanity that's been with us, that we tend to rank people one above another. We tend to dehumanize those who are different than us. And this is something that has been with us and we can see throughout history. But is there something about this particular mm-hmm. time, do you think? It's absolutely being called out right now. I think that a wound has been opened that was present and it is uh, being the, – the flames are being fanned uh, through divisive rhetoric and the increase – we can see it statistically in the increase in hate crimes and incidents against the Jewish community, against the African-American community, against GLBTQ community. There's definitely an increase in these incidents in this time. Do you point to a source for the – flame fanning? I think that we are definitely in a time where divisive rhetoric from our leaders is making a difference, that people feel that it is okay to say things that they would not have thought it was okay to say before, that uh, we're definitely seeing that right now. Let's talk just briefly about security at religious institutions. Uh, I think it's it's common for synagogues especially to have a security guard on hand, uh, perhaps at the High Holy Days, at times when lots of people will be uh, worshiping. And certainly after the incident in Colorado Springs, I know that some churches added security. What's the right balance in your mind between securing a religious institution and yet not making it feel... Uh, you know, like Fort Knox. It's something that we're wrestling with right now as religious communities. And while safety is certainly a priority and important, I think that we cannot wall ourselves off as faith communities. A central tenet of so many of our faith traditions is hospitality and welcome and openness to the community. And we can uh, fall into being locked into fear rather than being open to one another. And so let's say you were planning this for your own congregation. Just Mm -hmm. let's just imagine that you have a church. um, Your work right now is solely with the Interfaith Alliance. But this is this is not a stretch reverend to say you have a church. What would you want the balance to be? You know, and this is something that we deal with regularly. This isn't uh, a new issue. We are in communication and relationship with law enforcement uh, as faith leaders and the Muslim community, the Jewish community, many in the Christian community. There are efforts being um, made to build those relationships. So there's an awareness uh, and our eyes are open. At the same time, it is not my inclination at all to have armed guards at the front of a faith community for regular services. For regular services. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can we go back just briefly to the work you're doing in Colorado as an interfaith alliance? If I'm someone listening to this conversation thinking, you know, I'm yearning for the kind of connection she's Mm -hmm. talking about. Give us one example of how someone might... Uh, engage. Yeah, we have a few different ways that we invite people to connect. We do different education and programming and bringing people together from different religions uh, grounded in our shared values and human rights and equality. We have a monthly gathering on the last Thursday of every month that people can find out about on our website, interfaithalliance.co.org. We also do work during the legislative session to help people understand how to reach into their faith values to be engaged in our uh, civic life together. 
All right. So you could ask as an individual, you might ask on behalf of your congregation. Uh, Yes. uh, Uh, Either way. Yes, absolutely. Reverend, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. Reverend Amanda Henderson leads the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado. She attended last night's vigil at Temple Emanuel in Denver. It honored the victims of Saturday's shootings in Pittsburgh, which left nearly a dozen dead. Other communities in Colorado held similar vigils. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's new law cracking down on prescription opioids could have unintended consequences. Some doctors worry that people in legitimate pain won't get the medications they need. Matthew Winia is medical ethicist and director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. And welcome back to the program. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. The law we're talking about, which just recently went into effect limits opioid prescriptions to a seven-day supply in most cases. Then it would have to be renewed by a doctor. And I'll say there are exceptions for people in hospice care or those with chronic pain or who have some serious illnesses like cancer. But uh, what is your fear and and what is that fear based on? I think the concern here is that um, there will be physicians and nurse practitioners and others who make these prescriptions who will be uh, so concerned with uh, breaking the law. And I'm putting that kind of in scare quotes because these are more guidelines than they are laws. Uh, But there will be people who are so concerned with breaking the law that they will become overly cautious in um, prescribing pain medication to people who legitimately need the pain medicine. And we are starting already to see examples of this nationwide where patients um, who need pain for legitimate purpose, pain medication for legitimate purposes are finding it difficult either to find a doctor who's willing to write the prescription or sometimes even to find a pharmacy willing to fill the prescriptions. There's a lot of second-guessing going on. It's raising issues of stigma and discrimination. Um, and I think that's the, that's the concern is that there's sort of a backlash, um, which is a backlash to a very real problem. Yeah. So, you know, don't want to underplay the importance of the crisis that we face in terms of opioid addictions and overdoses and deaths. There's a lot that I want to follow up on in that. So first off, are you seeing concrete examples in Colorado of patients who legitimately need pain medication and are not getting it? So I'm not aware of a study about that Uh so far, but there are many um, individual examples of people complaining that, you know, they have had to visit two or three or four uh, clinics before they find someone who is willing to write the prescription. There are certainly anecdotal examples of clinicians who have basically said because it has become such a hassle and so difficult and potentially risky for me to write these prescriptions that I'm just not going to do pain management anymore. Um, and that's that's where, you know, you really worry about the access to care for patients who have legitimate pain and need access to, to, uh, to well, not only to opioids, but to other management services for pain as well. 
So you think that this is perhaps shutting the door not just to opioids, but to like a broader conversation with someone's doctor about pain in general? That's interesting. Uh, I, th- I've, I have a concern. And again, I don't have data on this, but I have a concern that because people have become so reluctant to prescribe opioids um, and because it's been difficult to get alternative services covered, there are physicians and others who are just saying, I'm not going to deal with chronic pain at all anymore. What do you mean it's been difficult to get some alternatives covered? So if if, if perhaps I'm a, a patient or a doctor interested in something other than opioids for pain management, mm-hmm. are you saying it's hard to get insurance coverage for things like that? And what would that include? Yeah, it sometimes has been difficult to get insurers to cover things, even including things like physical therapy. But um, many of the alternatives to opioids or the abuse deterrent opioids, which are more expensive, um, have been ha, there have been barriers put up in terms of getting coverage to those. So you have to go through some paperwork in order to get those kinds of things covered, or you have to have tried something else first, those types of things. It's a bit of a catch-22 you're describing. Are there particular conditions or particular populations among patients you're concerned about in terms of legitimate access to these pain medications? Sure. So uh, I'll just give maybe the most obvious example, which is someone with non-cancer chronic pain. And so you could put in that category people who have, for example, sickle cell disease. So there are about 100,000 people in the country who have sickle cell disease. They typically experience very severe pain. And for many years, it's been difficult for them to access adequate uh, pain control. And the opioid crisis has exacerbated that for those patients, even though, by the way, they're relatively unlikely to overdose on opioids. I think of sickle cell as disproportionately affecting the African-American community. And so that speaks to the sort of disproportionality here. It does. And it raises the other piece of this that I find fascinating as an ethicist um, about this, that when you have a condition where the only way to ascertain the presence or absence of that condition is by talking to the patient. And trusting the patient, presumably. Yes. So we don't have a a blood test or or any other way to ascertain the level of someone's pain. That makes communication very important. And of course, anything that relies on communication is also more susceptible to bias. It's more susceptible to miscommunication and misunderstandings and to lack of trust and so on. Interesting. And so if there is any racial bias, perhaps, uh, that is affecting a physician's decision making or perception of a patient's That could have real consequences for, say, an African-American patient walking into a doctor's office. Right. And of course, uh, on an individual level, um, it's it's pretty uncommon to find uh, a clinician who is overtly biased Mm -hmm. in terms of race. But we also know that implicitly people tend to have, um, you know, stereotypes that that unfortunately come into play in in all of our human-to-human interactions. And they're particularly at risk when you're dealing with something where communication is really at the core of the entire interaction. It strikes me that fundamental to this is teaching uh, healthcare professionals as much as you can to differentiate between people who are legitimately in pain and trying to communicate that to you versus someone who's essentially trying to dupe you. Uh, is, is that a skill that, that doctors are taught? Is it, is it even a skill that can be taught? 
That's a great question. Um, it is something we try to teach. Uh, I don't know that there are, you know, great studies that prove that it is teachable because in the end, um, this is a human to human interaction. And whether someone is trying to dupe you or whether they're telling you the truth. Um, and, and by the way, we worry a lot about training people to question the truthfulness of the patients that they are serving, right? I mean, we, we spent, 40 years, the last 40 years really, trying to get over physicians being highly paternalistic mm. and um, thinking that they always know best and trying to get people to trust that the patient brings expertise to the table and that decisions need to be made in a shared way and, and basically to trust the patient. And now we have an opioid crisis. And so in this one domain, we are telling doctors, wait, you know that old paternalism stuff that we said was so bad? In this instance, it's not so bad. We want you to oh. second guess what patients think they want and tell them, you know, instead what you think is best for them. Is there a, a telltale sign that someone is lying? Well, so the the main tool we have for this right now is our prescription drug monitoring program, which allows us... to see if they're us, shopping around. Yeah, which allows us immediately. Uh, at the university now, it's a one-click function. It's very easy to find out whether someone is shopping around and getting opioids from multiple sources and not telling you. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about whether the uh, constraints now on opioid prescriptions is perhaps having unintended consequences and means that uh, those with legitimate pain aren't able to access these medications. And I, I have a real medical ethics question for you. Given uh, what the opioid epidemic has, has wrought on our communities, the pain that it has wrought on that end, is some amount of pain among patients who legitimately need the drug, is that a fair exchange for the larger benefit to society? And I, I, that's a painful question in and of itself mm -hmm. to ask, but it, it strikes me as the kind of philosophical questions, Matthew Winnie, that you you grapple with. Yeah, and that's, that is the question really at the heart of policy around this, right? Because policy looks at what is good on average for right. a community. And so on average for a community, there may be some trade-off that we are willing to make that some number of people will, will find it a little harder to get access to opioids that they really need. And in exchange, we are avoiding some of the, you know, 1,000 deaths last year from overdoses in, in Colorado. Uh, last year, Colorado overdoses um, overtook motor vehicle accidents uh, as a cause of death. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an extremely big problem. Uh, this is probably the top problem at places like the Colorado Medical Society right now. So trying to grapple with exactly that question um, and of course, what we'd like to say is that we never have to make that trade-off. And so we're trying to work on ways to ensure that um, people get the right pain medicine at the right time, not too much, that they're stored properly, that they're disposed of properly when they're no longer needed. So there are a lot of ways that we try and mitigate the potential risk of having opioids in the community. But it sounds like this debate is ongoing. Oh, absolutely. The question of how much sort of individual pain a society is willing to accept for that broader scale reduction in harm. This seven-day limit under the Colorado law, is that some magic number? Like what... 
Yeah, it's not exactly a magic number. Um, there are some data to suggest that the vast majority of people who have acute pain, even for th- most surgeries, mm-hmm. will not need opioids for more than about three to five days. And so uh, a variety of states have looked at this and implemented different standards. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has recommended about a seven-day um, limit before you at least reassess and see whether additional pain medicines are needed. And that's what's spelled out in the Colorado law. You, you talked about some of the fear that prescribers have of, and, and you used air quotes, breaking the law. What are the consequences that uh, a healthcare professional faces if he or she is perhaps accused or perceived of having abused this. Yeah, so these are it really is more of a guideline than an actual law. I mean, it's in law, but the law creates a guideline, a practice guideline. And the guideline, as you mentioned at the beginning, has carve outs for individuals who have chronic pain uh, due to cancer, people who are in hospice care, and so on. Um, uh, unfortunately, it also you know, does say that if you are in violation of these guidelines, it could become a professionalism issue, which means you could be brought up in front of the state medical board, uh. which is a very significant penalty if you get brought in front of the board. Um, that said, again, it is guidelines. So it, it specifically says in the law, for example, that you are supposed to check the prescription drug monitoring program before you write a second prescription for someone. But it also says you can uh, you can do that occasionally without checking as long as it doesn't become a pattern. Once it becomes a pattern, that's when you become susceptible to uh, the state medical board looking at it as a professionalism violation. Here's what I'm having trouble understanding. The, the guidelines don't seem unreasonable to me. I mean, it's seven days and then you renew and and, um, you know, it's it's generally what you can do about this. And uh, I don't mean to assert opinion by any means, but I I guess help me understand why it would have such a chilling effect on some medical professionals. In other words, the legislature is saying, hey, check a few boxes before you prescribe. But what you're saying is that there are healthcare professionals who are just saying, "I, I want nothing to do with this. Square that for me. Sure. So, uh, you know, again, this is my opinion based on my own practice. I don't find the guidelines to be particularly onerous either. Okay. Um, I expect there are practices where the guidelines are a little more onerous than they are for me. So I mentioned that I have a one-button opportunity to check the drug monitoring program. That's been in place for uh, just a number of months, about a year at our place. I'm sure there are others around the state for whom checking the drug monitoring program is actually a multi-step process. It's Uh, a little harder, right? So, um, and then you just sort of add up all the little pieces and then you, so the the little steps add up to, you know, some time, which is unreimbursed, of course. And then you add on top of that, the fact that some people will overinterpret this. It's, It's quite common when something is passed as a law for people to assume, you know, there could be jail time associated with this. There could be Uh, all fines associated with this. And I just don't want to take that risk. And I I think that's also part of what we're seeing is overcautiousness. Thanks for helping me understand that. And this in general. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Matthew Winnie, a medical ethicist and director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. And we talked about the crackdown on prescribing opioids and how it relates to those who legitimately need the drugs for pain. (music) 
You take the time to vote, fill out that long ballot, guess even the judges. But can you be sure your vote is counted? That's the question Purplish tackles this week. It's the political podcast from CPR News. And here again is host Sam Brash. All right, Nathaniel Miner, you've been looking into the question of election security in Colorado for weeks now, and you've been trying to figure out if votes will be safe from hackers this November. So where do you want to start? The doors are closing. Let's start downtown Denver, right on the 16th Street Mall, because election hacking is complex. It's technical. But I think it comes down to something pretty simple. Do people trust that their vote will count on Election Day? I hope so. I'm pretty sure it will. Uh, I'm very confident that it, it's an accurate accounting of the, of the vote. Uh, not that confident. <laughs> yeah, not too confident at all. <laughs> they have the barcode. I don't know. It just seems pretty legit. Okay, not that worried about it. No, not worried. <laughs> okay, got it. Thanks so much. But there was this one guy in particular who seemed to have put a lot of thought into this. Let's do this real quick. Can you uh, introduce yourself? Maybe what's your name? Sure. Joshua Adams. I live in Denver, Colorado. And I asked him the same question I'd asked everyone else. So when you get your ballot this week and you go to uh, drop it in the mail or drop it off, how confident do you feel um, that it's going to be counted correctly? Um, from the things in which have recently happened that have been in the news. Breaking news, the federal government has revealed that hackers targeted election systems in 21 states last year. The things that I've read on and seen on social media, it's alarming and concerning because, I mean, with so many different systems that have played with our, our, our ballot, that's scary. When I asked him for more specifics, he said he's most worried about Russia and how he thinks they've been messing with our election. Do we really have a voice or are we yelling in a hole or a pit and somebody else is actually the one pulling the strings in the background? Is he right to be concerned that a foreign government could hack the election? I mean, we can't say no because they tried two years ago. Russian hackers attacked state election systems, including ours in Colorado. It didn't work as far as we know, but Adams thought that Russians had done that, had actually changed the vote tallies in the last election. From the things that they have found, they mess with the election, right? So if the people in Russia can do it, why can't the people here do it? What we do know about the 2016 election from the Mueller investigation and other work is that the Russian government was trying to influence how people vote through things like fake news websites, propaganda. But as far as we know, they didn't actually change any votes. Right. But Adams isn't alone in thinking that they did. A recent NPR poll found that one in three Americans believe it's likely a foreign country will change vote tallies in the upcoming election. Like one in three Americans. And that's not good uh, because if people think their votes won't count, this whole system of democracy, of self-governance, that crumbles. People might not show up to the polls. They might not see their elected leaders as legitimate. Democracy really depends on people trusting election results. It's clear that even in a state like Colorado, where we supposedly have this really good election security system, voters here are skeptical, too. This week on Purplish, we're going to look at how Colorado gained its reputation for being the most reliable state to cast a ballot. And why, in 2018, that expert opinion might not be enough to put Colorado voters at ease. (laughs) 
Okay, Nathaniel Miner, let's do it. How did Colorado get so good at election security? Well, I think to really understand it, you have to go back to 2000. An election in turmoil, a presidency in the balance, a nation waits. Who will emerge the winner in the historic Florida recount? This is the moment where people in America start to doubt this technology that defined our elections for so long, paper ballots. The Florida recount showed all the just embarrassing problems that can come along with a traditional punch card system. First, you have to know that the punch hole is called a chad. So you've heard about all this chad stuff, right? Yeah, like the hanging chads. I I was only 10 when this all went down, but I mean, it was everywhere. Yeah, I was 12. Uh, But the chad stuff showed paper ballots are not foolproof, right? The dimpled chad. There is an indentation in the chad. The voter put some pressure on it, but didn't detach it at all from the ballot. Those were not counted. Certain designs can leave a lot of room for human error. The final category is the pregnant Chad. That is, the Chad was pierced with a hole. And then in Palm Beach County, Florida, the, the whole design of the ballot was problematic. Democrats charge a confusing ballot layout led voters to think they were punching the ballot for Al Gore when they were actually voting for Reform Party candidate Pat Buchanan. 3,500 people did not vote for Pat Buchanan. Come on, this is heavily Democrat of Palm Beach County. The Supreme Court eventually ended the recount and declared George Bush the winner. But the turmoil in Florida led to this bill called the Help America Vote Act, HAVA. And it was designed in large part to phase out old voting machines. When I first voted in Connecticut, the equipment I used to vote then is the equipment I've used today. And that's true in so many different states. We hope to improve that. As a result of HAVA, $650 million was provided to the states to replace lever and punch card machines for more modern voting equipment. Basically, the federal government had a plan to make voting systems more modern and accessible. And the guidelines they spelled out led many places to purchase electronic voting machines. And why? Like, what were the advantages to those devices? So the interfaces were clear in some cases, more straightforward than paper ballots. And many of them were more um, accommodating of people with disabilities. And then also you don't have piles of paper to sort through and count. But around the country and in Colorado, people started to worry about these things. Who? Like, who was raising the objections to these voting machines in Colorado? So one of the most persistent activists was this guy. I'm Neil McBurnett. I'm an independent consultant. I went up to Boulder recently to meet McBurnett. He's this tall guy with a big, bushy red beard and just a sweet, nice guy. And he's sort of like equal parts tech whiz and earnest believer in democracy. Democracy is hugely important. And recognizing the threats long before anyone was talking about Russia or cyber attacks has been a big motivator for me. And he had an opportunity to get involved back in 2002. A friend called me up and said, hey, they need election judges. And I said, that sounds fun. I'd like to know more about the mechanics of the process. Like an election judge. So he's one of those people that oversee everything at a polling station. And then they're often the ones who give you that, like, I voted sticker. Right. And in 2002, Boulder County still had paper ballots. But as a computer scientist, McBurnett did not like their system. I was nervous because they were using computers to count and report our votes. And I saw no one paying attention to the paper ballots that people had marked their choices on. What McBurnett realizes is that Boulder wasn't doing anything to keep track of its paper ballots. They just fed them into a computer and then paid attention to the final vote count. I mean, what's wrong with that? The results are what matters here, right? Uh, not really. Because let's say someone did manage to hack in and change results. How would you know? 
Like, if you had the original paper ballots kept under lock and key and carefully kept track of them, you could use that to check against those results. It's critical to have paper involved in elections in order to allow us to look at the evidence for each individual election and see if the evidence, the paper ballots, actually matches what the computers produce as the outcome of the election. So when other counties were moving toward electronic voting systems, McBurnett and others convinced Bowler to stick with paper. Um, The previous clerk looked like she was on a path where she wanted to use more electronic equipment. This is Hillary Hall, the Boulder County clerk and recorder. She credits people like McBurnett for preventing that from happening. Our citizens really engaged our commissioners, and through that, we ended up with a model where everyone would vote on a mail ballot unless you uh, wanted to use the accessible equipment, and then most people cast their ballot on paper. Okay, so in places across the country that aren't Boulder, counties uh, sometimes are moving more towards electronic voting systems. Right. But this backlash grows, and it eventually gets into a Halloween episode of The Simpsons. Ooh, one of those electronic voting dealies. Homer's using a touchscreen, and it's not working. One vote for McCain. Thank you. (laughs) No, I want to vote for Obama. Two votes for McCain. Come on, it's time for a change. Three votes for McCain. No, no, no! Six votes for President McCain. And this being a Halloween episode, Homer is actually eaten by the voting machine. Ah, This doesn't happen in America! Maybe Ohio, but not in America! But anyway, the point is that these new machines were becoming a joke in their own right. Okay, so people started to raise doubts about these machines and whether they were accurate and safe and would work. What happens in Colorado once that movement grows? So the counties across the state start taking notice and move toward paper themselves. And it all culminates in 2013 when the state legislature passes a bill moving Colorado to all mail-in paper ballots. Part of that was to increase access, but it also meant that almost every vote in the state now was cast on paper. The one exception is overseas voters. And for Neil McBurnett, after years of pushing, this was like a sweet, sweet victory. Yeah, I was absolutely thrilled. It's exciting when something that you've cared about for so long starts coming to fruition. It always takes longer than you think, I have to say that. When we come back, Sam follows a ballot from kitchen table to tabulation. Where is the voting system most vulnerable? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today we're talking about voting security. With ballots due November 6th, how can you be sure your ballot is counted and that no one hacks the system? Let's continue now with Purplish, the political podcast from CPR News and host Sam Brash. I'm here at the Southmore Park and Ride in front of a ballot drop-off with Nathaniel Miner, uh, our reporter for this episode. And Nate, you're going to like vote right now, right? Yeah, I'm going to drop it in in just a second. Before I do that, though, like this box that we're standing in front of, there are boxes like this 
all over the state. In addition to that, you can mail your ballot in. You can bring it in to a voting center. But a lot of people like these things because you pull over, jump out of your car, drop it in, and then you're done. Right. And the reason we decided to, to stand here is it's kind of the like starting point for this journey. Your ballot has to go on before election night when it actually gets counted and we see the results on the TV. And through that whole journey, it's got to be safe the entire time from from hackers. Right. So I'm going to drop it off here. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm done with it. But this ballot's life has just started. After a ballot, let's say your ballot either goes into the mail or someone fills it out in person or it drops into a drop box, what happens then? Well, first of all, no matter how someone delivers a ballot, they're under video surveillance or someone is watching them at, at one of these places. Really? Like, so we were under video surveillance when we dropped off that ballot? I mean, yeah, because remember, these paper ballots are the ultimate failsafe. If anyone tampers with the results, we need those ballots to prove that something went wrong. Those ballots then, they're delivered to a county processing center and then tabulated into this electronic data file. At the county level, couldn't someone just hack any of those counting machines if if they wanted to change the results? Uh, It would be really, really difficult to do that for a couple of reasons. And the first is, like, those places are, you know, under lock and key. Like, you can't just walk in. All the workers there have to take a um, CBI background check. And the machines that do the counting, the computers, those are not connected to the Internet at all. So you can't hack in remotely. Once they count all the votes and put those together into, you said, an electronic data file, what happens to that file? Those results then are put onto a USB thumb drive. And then a bipartisan team literally walks it from one set of computers offline, uh, you know, across a hallway or something to another computer that's connected to the Secretary of State's office. On that system, it's uploaded over an encrypted connection. Huh. Okay, so the Secretary of State gets these results, and they put them up on their website, right? So media organizations like us can report them on election night. Couldn't someone just hack that website? You know, there's a lot of security systems in place for that, but it is a website, so it's vulnerable. But the the thing to remember here is those are just the results. You're not changing any votes if you manage to get into that system. And the Secretary of State's office tells me that they have a contingency plan for that. So they have a different way of getting results from counties, and they would just post county-by-county county results on their page. Hmm. Okay, so... We find out what happens after election day. People are elected. They're not elected. They go home. That's it, right? The election's over. For most people, this is probably when everyone stops caring. But for election officials, we're only like at halftime here. Because what happens next is really what sets Colorado apart from other states. And this gets back to what people like Neil McBurnett, the cybersecurity guy in Boulder, was really fighting for. We expect that either with a cyber security attack or with uh, problems with the software, that there might be an incorrect outcome. And if there is an incorrect outcome, what we want to do is reduce the risk that that doesn't get corrected. 
So he helped establish a process to check election results just to make sure that nothing went wrong throughout this whole process. Other states don't do post-election audits, too? They do, yes, certainly. Those are done across the country to varying levels. But experts say no one does them quite as well as Colorado. And part of the reason why is instead of checking to make sure that an election went well, auditors here will start with the assumption that it didn't go well and they need to look at all the evidence to disprove that. So it's it's sort of turning it on its head. This last step that we're discussing is called a risk-limiting audit. And Colorado is the first state to do one at a statewide level back in 2017. There is a bag of dice. And they made it fun. So what we're going to be doing is having is drawing a name. That person will then come forward and draw a die, the singular. Started by having... A person just roll a 10-sided die. A 10-sided die like the kind you might use in a Dungeons & Dragons game? Yeah, exactly. The number 8 has been rolled. So the dice generate a random number, and then that's used to select random ballots from counties across the state. Those ballots are checked against the results that were tabulated. If it's a close race, they'll pull more. If it's a blowout, then they don't need to pull that many. And it's really an innovative system because you don't need to check every ballot. Okay, so this audit, and I think pretty much everything else we've been talking about so far, it's been focused on the threat of hackers breaking in and actually changing vote tallies. And as we said, the counting of votes, it's something that happens at the county level. I I wonder what about at the state level? Because it's my understanding that the state maintains this big database with voter info that's also really important to making sure our elections work. Yeah, so that database is maintained by the Secretary of State's office. It's used to to keep track of where voters are, uh, if they're active or not, addresses, personal info, even a copy of their signature is in there. It's hugely important to making this whole process work. And counties do have access to it. They update it in real time. But there's a number of security measures in place here. So like if a county worker in Jeffco needs to get in, he or she will log in with username and password, and then they have a physical card from the Secretary of State's office that has codes on it. And they Mm -hmm. need to use one of those codes to complete the login just to get in. Right. So the state takes it pretty seriously. But I think the thing to remember here is if someone did get into that somehow, they couldn't change any votes. The worst they could do would be so a lot of chaos, which, yeah, would be pretty bad. Yeah, I I think it would be pretty bad because... As we've said, I mean, the threat from hackers isn't just whether or not they could change votes. It's whether or not they could manage to shake voters' confidence in the whole electoral system. So I guess what I want to ask you, Nathaniel, is from the research you've done, from the people you've talked to, is this a system that you think voters can trust in Colorado? I don't think we can say like our elections are 100 percent secure. Like this is a big, complicated process. But experts across the country, they look at Colorado and say, yep, this is as good as we're going to get in 2018. Are cybersecurity experts and election officials, though, are they getting the word out on that? Are they letting voters know that Colorado's election system can probably, in their estimation, be trusted? I mean, they're more than happy to talk to journalists like us who do stories like this. But let's step back for a minute and look at the environment that they're operating under. This is not part of American politics. This is not 
you know, partisan warfare between Republicans and Democrats. Turn on cable news and it's wall to wall with stories about election hacking and the Mueller investigation. This is international warfare against our country. And it's just a steady drip of new information. And yeah, we don't know the full extent of what happened at the moment. But Democratic senators like Bill Nelson of Florida think that this might shake confidence in the electoral system. Our constitutional foundation is built on a process of free and fair and unfettered elections. Well, what happened in this country two years ago put a crack in that foundation. And certainly President Trump's rhetoric has not helped here. But they even want to try and rig the election at the polling booths where so many cities are corrupt. And you see that. And voter fraud is all too common. And then they criticize us for saying that. And we have even Republicans. Oh, that's such a terrible thing to say. When was that Trump bite from? So that was a rally back in October 2016 in Colorado Springs. And I picked it because it just so happens that our Republican Secretary of State, Wayne Williams, who runs our election system, he lives in Colorado Springs. And so I asked him if his mission to promote the election system is complicated by President Trump's rhetoric. Yes, it causes challenges for me. Do I wish everybody would say things that were correct all the time? Yeah, that'd make my life a whole lot easier. And Williams really sees it as his job to be a cheerleader in this respect, to boost confidence in the system. If people do not believe the legitimacy of election results, then they deny the legitimacy of the government. They refuse to pull over for the police officer. They um, refuse to pay taxes. They refuse to stop at the red light. You know, whatever uh, the issue may be, and that's not the type of chaos that we want in Colorado or in the United States. And I don't think we'll get there. I think states like Colorado are showing a way out of that morass or out of that possibility. Is that working? Does opening up our electoral system to the public, explaining it to journalists like us, does that build up trust in democracy? Well, I mean, we don't have numbers specific to Colorado. Like that poll we mentioned earlier about a third of American voters thinking that foreign governments can change votes, Mm -hmm. that was national. But what we do know is that Colorado has great voter turnout, more than 70% in 2016. Nationwide, it was more like 58%. And it's also notable that in our highest profile races, you don't see a Jared Polis or a Walker Stapleton actively undermining our electoral system. They're not saying the whole system is rigged like President Trump did in 2016. Right, exactly. But let's let's go back to that guy we met earlier, Joshua Adams. He was downtown. I gave him a quick recap of how our system works. So there's there's a lot of things in place to make sure that your ballot is counted correctly. Does that, does that make you feel any different? It does make me feel different. It does make me feel a little bit better. I think even more so what's now more alarming to me, even with that new information, is the fact that there's so much misinformation that if a person like myself is completely crazily misinformed, then how many other people who are like me are now misinformed and don't really know what to do, how to vote, anything? And Adam says his life is just hectic enough, like he works a lot of overtime, that he doesn't have time to read the newspaper and educate himself. Then it's easier to spread misinformation to people who are desperate. And we, and that's the problem. We are all desperate to just live right now. 
And that's the challenge here. For every Joshua, there are more people who just don't buy into the system. I mean, is that a problem? Because it's okay to be skeptical. We shouldn't blindly trust that our election systems are safe. We should demand proof that they are safe. Yeah, totally. Like, I agree. Um, Experts and election officials also agree. They say that Colorado has to keep getting better. Wayne Williams says that, and the Democrat running for his seat right now, Jenna Griswold, she says that too. She wants to try to get more money from the feds to make the systems better. But where we are right now in October 2018, I think we have to acknowledge that Colorado has built a system that seems to be working really well. And if you don't believe that, election officials here are more than happy to show their work. You just have to care enough and have the time to get involved. But it does seem like there's two parts to the challenge here. Again, it's it's not just that election officials have to stay one step ahead of the hackers and always be wary of weaknesses in their system. They have to convince the public that their vote will in fact count. And I guess I'm just not totally sure yet that they've managed to do that. Well, let's take it one step further here, because what I keep thinking about is this. Like right now, Colorado is in the enviable position where its elected officials are reassuring people that their vote is safe. But what if our systems were compromised? Like what if hackers did get in somehow? They'd probably catch it and they'd fix it, but it would probably also do a number on voter confidence. And officials then would be trying to rebuild trust. And I think that would be a whole lot harder. Okay, Nate. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Sam. Nathaniel Miner and Sam Brash. Sam's the host of Purplish, the political podcast from CPR News. And next time he looks into why people don't vote and how to sway them. You can subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll bring you the next episode on Election Day here on Colorado Matters. Finally, a message for Colorado musicians. Today's your last chance to enter our contest. The winner will perform at the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. Find all the details at CPR.org. Today is the deadline. Thanks for being with us.